Chapter 6, Gastroenterology, Topic 2, Esophagus. In this section, we'll review various pathologies of the esophagus, starting off with Zenker's diverticulum. At its core, Zenker's diverticulum is a true diverticulum. This means it involves multiple layers of the esophagus, the mucosa, the submucosa, and the muscularis externa. It's predominantly observed in the proximal esophagus and is most commonly seen in elderly males. The pathophysiology behind Zenker's diverticulum is rooted in the weakness of the cricopharyngeal muscle. This weakness causes a posterior herniation of the proximal esophagus, occurring between the muscle fibers. In essence, a pouch-like structure forms due to this herniation. Patients with Zenker's diverticulum often present with a characteristic set of signs and symptoms. They may complain of dysphagia or a difficulty in swallowing. Many describe a sensation as though food is stuck in their throat. Additionally, these patients may experience regurgitation, often coupled with halitosis or bad breath. In some cases, they might also have a noticeable neck mass or complain of chest discomfort. In terms of diagnostics, a barium esophagram is the test of choice. It's imperative, however, to exercise caution. If Zenker's diverticulum is suspected, it's best to avoid esophagogastroduodenoscopy, EGD, due to the high risk of perforating the diverticulum. An inadvertent perforation could lead to significant complications. For those diagnosed with Zenker's diverticulum, management is primarily surgical. Procedures include both open and endoscopic approaches, with the aim often being a cricopharyngeal myotomy. This procedure helps alleviate the symptoms by addressing the underlying muscle dysfunction. Next, we'll briefly discuss other types of diverticula. Specifically, we'll be examining traction diverticula and epiphrenic diverticula. Starting off with traction diverticula, this type of diverticulum is located in the mid-esophagus. So, how does it form? The primary cause is related to mediastinal adenopathy, especially associated with pulmonary tuberculosis and inflammation. Essentially, the inflammation or the lymph node enlargement in the mediastinum exerts a pulling force or traction on the esophageal wall, leading to the formation of the diverticulum. One important note about traction diverticula is that in most cases, no treatment is necessary. These diverticula are often asymptomatic. Moving on to the epiphrenic diverticula, as the name suggests, epiphrenic refers to its location just above the diaphragm, placing it in the lower esophagus. What causes this type of diverticulum? The most common culprits are conditions that alter the normal motility of the esophagus. Conditions such as achalasia, where there's a failure of the lower esophageal sphincter to relax, or esophageal spasms, which involve uncoordinated contractions of the esophagus, can lead to increased intraesophageal pressure. This pressure subsequently causes the formation of the diverticulum. When it comes to managing epiphrenic diverticula, the focus is primarily on treating the underlying cause. Addressing the esophageal motility disorder can often alleviate the symptoms associated with the diverticulum. We'll now shift our focus to achalasia. Achalasia is an esophageal motility disorder. At its core, it is characterized by the incomplete relaxation of the lower esophageal sphincter, or LES for short. Now, the causes of achalasia can vary. While in many cases the cause is idiopathic, there are certain conditions and factors to be aware of. Pseudoachalasia can be caused by an adenocarcinoma of the lower esophagus or the proximal stomach, and this mimics the symptoms of classic achalasia. Chagas disease, a tropical parasitic infection, and scleroderma, a systemic autoimmune condition, can also lead to achalasia. Additionally, 
achalasia can be iatrogenically induced, such as after a Nissen fundoplication, which is a surgery for gastroesophageal reflux disease. The pathophysiology of achalasia centers around the acquired loss of motor neurons in the myenteric plexus of the LES. This loss disrupts the normal coordinated muscle contractions and relaxations that are essential for food passage. Clinically, patients with achalasia often present with dysphagia to both solids and liquids. They may frequently express a sensation of food being stuck in their throat. Over time, due to difficulty in swallowing, weight loss becomes a concerning symptom. Regurgitation, heartburn, and chest discomfort are also common complaints associated with this condition. In terms of diagnostics, there are a few key studies and findings. A barium esophagram might reveal a bird's beak appearance due to narrowing at the distal esophagus. Esophageal manometry can show an increased resting pressure at the LES. Additionally, an EGD with biopsy is crucial. Here, one can observe the loss of motor neurons in the myenteric plexus. Moreover, this investigation also rules out malignant etiologies that can present as pseudoachalasia. Now, let's discuss management. On the pharmacological front, calcium channel blockers and nitrates can be employed to help relax the LES. Botulinum toxin injection into the LES has also been used as a treatment option. Surgical interventions like pneumatic dilation or myotomy are more definitive treatments. Lifestyle changes such as avoiding meals before bedtime and maintaining an upright position while eating can also alleviate symptoms. Lastly, it's essential to be aware of complications, with aspiration being a major one due to the retained food and liquids in the esophagus. Shifting our attention now to esophageal spasm. Esophageal spasm is primarily an idiopathic disorder. T is characterized by painful spasms of the esophagus, leading to a range of symptoms. Now, one of the significant clinical challenges with esophageal spasms is how it presents. The condition can manifest similarly to acute coronary syndrome, ACS. Patients often describe a severe, crushing substernal chest pain. Crucially, unlike ACS, this pain is unrelated to exertion and can be relieved by nitrates. Additionally, patients might complain of dysphagia and odynophagia. Another hallmark of esophageal spasms is that the symptoms might be exacerbated by consuming hot or cold foods. So, how does one go about diagnosing esophageal spasm? Given the clinical overlap with ACS, it's imperative first to rule out any cardiac issues. This involves conducting an electrocardiogram, EKG, and checking for cardiac enzymes. Once a cardiac etiology is ruled out, one can proceed with investigations more specific to the esophagus. A barium esophagram can be quite revealing. During episodes of contraction, a rosary bead or a corkscrew appearance may be observed, hinting at the spastic activity. Esophageal manometry, a test that measures the pressure inside the esophagus, often reveals diffuse, random, and high-amplitude contractions of the esophageal muscles. An endoscopy, which visually inspects the esophagus, typically appears normal, reinforcing the notion that the issue is functional rather than structural. When it comes to management, it's crucial to understand that there's no single effective treatment for esophageal spasms. Instead, the approach is symptomatic relief. Calcium channel blockers, like diltiazem, can be used to alleviate the spasms. Nitrates, tricyclic antidepressants, such as imipramine, and even phosphodiesterase inhibitors like sildenafil, have been employed with varying success. Moving on, we'll review gastroesophageal reflux disease. 
Gastroesophageal reflux disease is essentially a disorder of the esophagogastric junction. Let's unpack the primary causes. A sliding hiatal hernia. This is where there's a herniation of the gastroesophageal GE junction above the diaphragm. Gastric outlet obstruction. Gastric dysmotility. As an aside, in contrast to a sliding hiatal hernia, paraesophageal hernias occur when there is herniation of the gastric fundus through the diaphragm resulting in increased risk of strangulation and ulceration, which may require surgical repair. Underlying gastroesophageal reflux disease is a pathophysiological process where there's excessive relaxation of the lower esophageal sphincter, LES. This leads to a retrograde flow of stomach acid into the esophagus, causing the hallmark symptoms of gastroesophageal reflux disease. Speaking of symptoms, Patients with gastroesophageal reflux disease often describe heartburn and dyspepsia, especially following meals. They might also report a metallic taste in their mouth, indicative of acid reflux. Other accompanying symptoms include nausea, vomiting, and early satiety. On the respiratory side, gastroesophageal reflux disease can manifest as nocturnal asthma, chronic cough, and even hoarseness. There's also the possibility of chest discomfort, belching, and regurgitation. Now let's move on to how gastroesophageal reflux disease is diagnosed. Most cases of gastroesophageal reflux disease are diagnosed clinically, and additional testing is often reserved for unresponsive or atypical cases. One might retrospectively diagnose gastroesophageal reflux disease if a patient shows a response to proton pump inhibitors. The 24-hour pH monitoring is both the most sensitive and specific test for gastroesophageal reflux disease and is particularly useful prior to contemplating surgical interventions like the Nissen fundoplication or in patients who don't respond to PPIs. An endoscopy with biopsy is vital for assessing changes to the esophageal mucosa, especially looking out for Barrett esophagus. It's also employed when there are alarming symptoms present, like significant weight loss, gastrointestinal bleeding anemia, signs of obstruction, or persistent vomiting. Management of gastroesophageal reflux disease is multifaceted. Behavioral modification plays a key role. This includes avoiding foods and substances that can exacerbate reflux, like spicy foods, chocolates, peppermints, and alcohol. Avoiding large meals before bedtime and elevating the torso during sleep can also help. Pharmacologically, the mainstay of treatment is PPIs, though H2 blockers and antacids can also be beneficial. In cases unresponsive to these treatments, a surgical intervention, specifically a Nissen fundoplication, might be considered. Finally, it's crucial to be cognizant of the complications arising from gastroesophageal reflux disease. Barrett esophagus is particularly noteworthy. Here, there's a metaplasia of the LES from its normal stratified squamous epithelium to a columnar epithelium. This change is a precursor to adenocarcinoma. Other complications include esophageal strictures and spasms, aspiration pneumonia, erosive esophagitis, dental erosion, and even laryngitis. Next, let's discuss the distinction between infectious esophagitis and pill-induced esophagitis. Infectious esophagitis can arise from various pathogens. Common culprits include the herpes simplex virus, cytomegalovirus, and candida. Often, patients with this condition might have a background indicating an immunocompromised state. The symptom profile typically comprises dysphagia, odynophagia, retrosternal chest pain, and in instances where candida is the causative agent, evidence of oral thrush might be apparent. 
A more alarming manifestation is upper gastrointestinal bleeding. When diagnosing this condition, endoscopy coupled with a biopsy is the primary tool. On examining patients with a candida infection, white plaques may be evident on the esophageal mucosa. On the other hand, those with HSV will show round ovoid ulcers, and CMV infections lead to large linear ulcers. Treatment depends on the causative agent, acyclovir for HSV, gonciclovir for CMV, and fluconazole for candida. On the other hand, pill-induced esophagitis is linked to certain medications. Notable among these are bisphosphonates, non-enteric-coated non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, potassium chloride, iron, and tetracyclines. Clinically, the presentation can be quite similar to infectious esophagitis. However, a distinguishing feature often lies in the patient's recent or ongoing medication regimen. The diagnostic approach involves a combination of the patient's medical history and the findings during an endoscopic examination of the esophagus. Management primarily entails the cessation or substitution of the causative drug. Symptomatic relief is paramount, and it's crucial to monitor for serious complications such as esophageal perforation. Changing gears, we'll now talk about esophageal rings and webs. Let's begin with their definitions. An esophageal ring is characterized by a circumferential protrusion of the esophageal mucosa extending into the lumen of the esophagus. On the other hand, an esophageal web is described as a partial protrusion of the esophageal mucosa into the lumen, not completely encircling it. The exact etiology of these formations remains elusive, but many experts believe that chronic gastroesophageal reflux disease may be a contributory factor. Patients with these anatomical abnormalities often present with intermittent dysphagia, especially to solid foods. They may describe a sensation of food getting lodged in their throat, leading to discomfort. Additionally, some patients may report symptoms of dyspepsia. Certain conditions are specifically associated with rings and webs. For instance, esophageal rings often coexist with other pathologies like hiatal hernias or eosinophilic esophagitis. Esophageal webs, on the other hand, are famously associated with plumber vincent syndrome. This syndrome is a clinical triad encompassing an esophageal web, iron deficiency anemia, and an increased risk of developing squamous cell carcinoma. Interestingly, both rings and webs have been noted in conjunction with autoimmune dermatological conditions such as bullous pemphigoid and pemphigus vulgaris. In terms of diagnostics, a barium esophagram serves as a valuable tool illuminating the structural abnormality within the esophagus. Managing patients with esophageal rings or webs requires a multi-pronged approach. Advising patients to thoroughly chew their food can alleviate some symptoms. Pneumatic dilation of the esophagus is a procedural intervention that can provide relief by stretching and breaking these obstructions. Furthermore, as chronic gastroesophageal reflux disease is believed to be a contributing factor, long-term administration of proton pump inhibitors might be beneficial in managing the underlying cause and preventing recurrence. Next, we'll review the differences between Mallory-Weiss tear and Boerhaave syndrome. A Mallory-Weiss tear is characterized as a longitudinal submucosal laceration found at the junction of the distal esophagus and the proximal stomach. This tear is most commonly attributed to severe vomiting and retching, leading to a sudden increase in intra-abdominal pressure. Patients with this condition typically present with self-resolving hematemesis and might also complain of epigastric or back pain. Diagnosis is often clinical if the patient recounts an appropriate history and no longer exhibits symptoms by the time of the consultation. 
However, in more ambiguous cases, an EGD can be performed, which would reveal the characteristic longitudinal submucosal laceration. Thankfully, the majority of Mallory Weiss tears self-resolve without the need for any therapeutic interventions. Yet for those with persistent bleeding, several treatments can be pursued, such as epinephrine, electrocautery, intravenous proton pump inhibitors, or antiemetics. On the other hand, Borhab syndrome describes a transmural laceration of the esophagus. The usual culprit behind this syndrome, similar to Mallory Weiss tear, is severe vomiting and retching. However, other potential causes for such a severe injury include recent EGD or penetrating trauma. The clinical presentation of Borhab syndrome is more dire compared to Mallory Weiss tear. Patients typically exhibit acute retrosternal chest pain, which might be accompanied by subcutaneous emphysema. Clinicians might note crepitus upon palpation of the suprasternal notch. Additionally, patients may complain of odynophagia and dysphagia. In severe cases, the patient can progress to fever and even septic shock. The diagnostic approach is multifaceted. While a gastrograph and esophagram can pinpoint the location of the tear by highlighting contrast extravasation, a computed tomography, CT of the thorax, or a chest x-ray can reveal pneumomediastinum or a left-sided pleural effusion, which suggests rupture of the left posterolateral distal esophagus. If these findings are present, thoracentesis and subsequent pleural fluid analysis might show an elevated amylus level, indicative of the presence of saliva from the esophageal contents. Management for Borhab syndrome is more aggressive, often necessitating surgical repair. Alternatives to surgery include drainage, endoscopic stent placement, or in extreme cases, esophagectomy. It's also crucial to remember that a barium swallow test is generally discouraged if a transmural tear is suspected, as the extravasation of barium into the mediastinum can trigger mediastinitis. Our last pathology of the esophagus is esophageal cancer. Esophageal cancer is a severe form of cancer with several associated risk factors and manifestations. There are primarily two types of esophageal cancer, squamous cell carcinoma and adenocarcinoma, each having its unique set of risk factors. Squamous cell carcinoma has several risk factors. Smoking and alcohol consumption have long been associated with this type of esophageal cancer. The elderly population is also at increased risk. Dietary habits, such as consuming nitrate-containing foods or having vitamin and mineral deficiencies like beta-carotene, B1, zinc, and selenium, can contribute to its development. Furthermore, certain hereditary conditions such as Ploetz-Jäger syndrome and Cowden syndrome, which is due to a PTN tumor suppressor gene mutation, can predispose individuals to this form of cancer. On the other hand, adenocarcinoma of the esophagus is closely linked to long-standing gastroesophageal reflux disease, leading to a condition known as Barrett's esophagus. Smoking is again a significant risk factor for this type of cancer. Obesity and dietary habits particularly high calorie and fat intake, are also considered contributing factors. Individuals with esophageal cancer may present with a range of symptoms. Progressive dysphagia, initially with solids and then with liquids, is a typical sign. Significant weight loss is also a common feature, and it may be accompanied by gastrointestinal bleeding, chest discomfort, or dyspepsia. Some patients may also develop a cough, voice hoarseness, or even experience vomiting and regurgitation. To diagnose esophageal cancer, the initial test typically employed is a barium esophagram. 
This imaging technique can reveal an asymmetric narrowing of the esophageal lumen, indicative of a possible tumor. A biopsy is crucial for confirming the diagnosis and determining the type of cancer. For those diagnosed with esophageal cancer, a PET CT scan is often performed for staging the disease, which helps determine its extent and inform treatment decisions. Management strategies for esophageal cancer depend largely on the stage of the disease. For localized disease, surgical resection remains the primary treatment option. However, if the disease is metastatic, spreading beyond the esophagus, then chemoradiation becomes a viable approach. Palliative stent placement can also be considered, especially in cases where the primary aim is to alleviate symptoms and improve the patient's quality of life rather than to cure the disease.